Well, hey there, friends. I want to welcome all of you to week three of our More Together journey. And I've got to say, I continue to love being partnered alongside a church family that knows that we exist to connect people to God, to each other, and to their purpose. And if I were to say to you, if you could be part of reaching thousands and seeing thousands step into a relationship with God, thousands walking in freedom and hope and healing in Jesus, I imagine most of you, many if not all of you, would lean boldly into doing that. And I know many of you already have. As the way you've prayed and served and sacrificed over the years among the Heritage family, there are already thousands who will be in heaven because of the way that you have invested. But I want to tell you, the more together conversation is positioning us for, for exactly that, more. That God has more. I believe this conversation will be the most impactful conversation we will have this year as a church family. And it'll set trajectory for years to come for us. It is specifically an invitation to greater partnership and commitment in chasing the purposes of God as a church family and reaching those who are far from God. It is not a simple fundraising mechanism. It is an invitation to step boldly into the more that God has for us as individuals and as a church. And it actually positions us to understand and see where we stand with God, how he sees us and how he responds to us. And I'm glad you're here to be part of it. Because last week we actually looked at an image that helps us understand where we sit in relationship to God and others. This is the image that we use as a church family to understand that we live in a space with two gaps in our world. A gap between us and God and a gap between us and other people. Thankfully Jesus fills this gap and we can have a relationship with God. But then Jesus sends us to build bridges and establish a relationship with other people. And if you missed last week's conversation, you're not familiar with what this looks like, get online and check it out. It's important to understand this dynamic because it, it impacts all of us. It speaks to all of us. But today what I want to do is actually look at how Jesus talked about this with one of his disciples, a, a guy by the name of Peter. And if you have a Bible, I invite you to grab it and turn to the last chapter in the book of John, John chapter 21. We're going to lean into this particular interaction for our entire time today. And so as you're turning there, you can get there. We'll have the scriptures on the screen and also in your note guide. But we're picking up the story at a moment where this is after Peter had denied Jesus three times, just totally failed him. It's after Jesus had risen from the dead. And it's after the disciples have moved to a space where they've reverted to fishing. And Jesus is going to show up. They're going to have breakfast. And then He's going to have a conversation with Peter, and it's a restorative conversation. And that's where we're going to be leaning into this particular story. But I want you to understand a bit more of the dynamic around it, because Peter, along with six other disciples, are in Galilee. They're on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, this would have been about 75 to 80 miles away from Jerusalem, where the crucifixion and resurrection had all taken place. About three days' travel and it's important to understand, they weren't there because they were running. They were there because they were told to go there. In Matthew 28, when Mary Magdalene and the other Mary go to the tomb and they find an angel there and they find Jesus has been risen, the angel says, look, he's not here. Jesus isn't here. He's risen. Go and tell his disciples that he's gone to Galilee ahead of them and he'll see him there. <laughs> and then as the two Marys leave, they bump into Jesus and Jesus himself says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Tell my brothers I've gone to Galilee and I will see them there. They will see me there. Matthew 28 is very clear in saying these guys were following instructions to go there. So they actually go to Galilee and they're waiting. 
Jesus said he would go ahead of them, but they're, they're waiting, and there's almost a sense that they're lost. They're lost. They, they've lost their direction and purpose. They've lost their leader in Jesus. They've even lost their income in the ministry that they had invested in in a space, and they're like hanging out, waiting, and Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the other six say, fine, we'll go with you. Now, in this space, the first part of John 21, we know that it's Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John, and two other disciples. How would you like to be those two guys? <laughs> it, just the other guys. You got the five and the other guys. I don't know why Peter or why John did that to these two, but two other disciples are with them. All seven are in this space. Peter says, I'm going fishing, and they all go. They spend the night fishing, and they catch absolutely nothing. Nothing. And that's where we're picking this up. So if you've got a Bible, you can track along with me there, or you can just track along here. This is John chapter 21, starting with verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Now, something to understand. This, this is the third post-resurrection appearance that John records in the Gospels. The two other ones, Jesus was not recognized right away. They still don't recognize him in this space. Yet I'll tell you, recognizing Jesus is the first step to experiencing more recognizing who he is. So let's just lean on and in. At verse five, he says, I, he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the other side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now, fishing at night was the preferred time for fishing in ancient times. These guys had been out. They had caught absolutely nothing. And if you have ever worked a night shift, if you ever stayed up all night long and worked, you know that it's not easy. It's emotionally hard, physically hard. It's challenging. It is, it is likely that these guys were hungry and tired, that they were hangry at this point. When some random dude shows up on the shore and says, why don't you try the other side of the boat? <laughs> for whatever reason they did, I'm going to tell you because they did, it leads to breakthrough. Let's take a look. Verse 7, then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that, that's John, that's the guy who's writing this book of the Bible, said to Peter, it is the Lord. So somehow he recognizes Jesus through the miracle in the moment. He turns to Peter and says it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off to do some work, and then jumped into the water. This is by far one of my favorite details in this entire encounter, that Peter got dressed to go swimming. We'll talk about why in a moment. We'll get to that in a second, but let's look. Verse 8, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. Now, I love this exchange. I love this passage of scripture, and I love that Peter gets dressed to jump into the water. Why would he do that? Now, here's the thing. I can't fully know this, this side of heaven, but I am deeply convinced and believe that he thought he was going to walk on water again. <laughs> He'd done it before. He had seen Jesus before from a boat. He had gotten out of the boat, walked on water. He had some trouble when he got distracted by the storm, but I think Peter thought, it's Jesus, I'm going, and I'm cruising to shore. Bloop. <laughs> Now, again, I can't, I don't really know that fully, but I think it makes tons of sense for what he was doing. But I'll tell you this, regardless of the fact that he couldn't walk on water, he didn't care. He was making a beeline to Jesus because he knew he needed interaction with him. He knew he needed a space of restoration. He knew, he knew he needed this moment. And he was going there no matter what. 
Because he had denied Jesus three times and he knew it. He knew it. And this is going to be a space where Jesus actually creates a space to reconcile. I really don't know and can't prove if he thought he was going to walk on water. But regardless of whether he thought that or not, the beauty is he got out of the boat. He leapt. He took a step. He made a bold move. He was willing to fail trying, not just fail watching. And whether you know it or not, whether you feel it or see it today, Jesus wants you to experience breakthrough. Whatever you're facing, whatever difficulty you're in, he wants you to experience abundant, full life, the life you were created for, the life he came for you to have. He he wants you to live into the more of God. It's what we're talking about in our more together journey, living into the more of God. And he wants that for you. But I think fundamentally, many of us are really just one bold move away from breakthrough. I think most of us are one bold move away from the breakthrough, away from that breakthrough in our personal lives, in our professional lives, away from a breakthrough out of addiction, away from a breakthrough out of crippling fear or worry, or a breakthrough out of the brokenness of the past, any kind of problem or issue in our relationship with God. I believe most of us are one bold move away from breakthrough, just one. A willingness to step out of the boat, a willingness to risk for more, We'll see this as true for Peter as we continue to read, but I know it's true for you and I as well. One bold move away from breakthrough. We go back to the idea that there's two gaps in our world. The reality is that that bold move can be this way for some of us and this way for others. Your bold move may be in the direction of relationship with God. Your one bold move away from breakthrough spiritually with God or your one bold move away from breakthrough because you're willing to build bridges of relationship to somebody else. It works both ways. Jesus does not save us to just be saved alone. He saves us to send us. I'll tell you, saving faith, it is by faith alone. But that saving faith is never alone. It always has an expression of love this way. If we love him, we will love this direction. If we don't love here, we actually don't love here. And I believe that most of us are just one bold move away from breakthrough, from starting something, stopping something, stepping into a space, whether it's a space of brokenness out of our own failure, out of the failure of others or loss or disappointment or some sin, one bold move away from breakthrough. And instead of reverting and regressing and going back to what we've known or the things we've done before, actually boldly stepping out into what can be in Jesus. Because even though we're tempted to revert and go back to spaces we've known before, Jesus always has more for us. And whatever you know of him, whatever you've experienced of him, whatever you understand of him, there is still more. And most of us being one bold move away from experiencing that breakthrough, whatever it might be, wherever it might lead us, whatever it might cost us, the breakthrough is ultimately because of the power of God at work in our lives. It is bold moves of obedience that brings the power of God to bear in our life. Lots of people try things. Lots of people take risks. But it is the power of God that is brought to bear in a space of bold obedience that makes all the difference. It's true for us. It was true for Peter. And most of us are just one bold move away. But let's go back to the scripture and see what actually transpires here. This is verse 9 of chapter 21. When they, and that would be the other six, because Peter has already done his swim fest to the shore. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals with fish on it and, and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. 
Now what's very interesting to me is detail in scripture and that detail right there blows my mind. Jesus already had fish. He already had fish for them. He provided fish for them and he asked them to bring the fish he provided, but he didn't need the fish that they had caught, that he had provided. He, he had fish for them already. There's this interesting dynamic of detail. He had even beyond what he had provided to them. So Simon, in response, Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. <laughs> this is Simon, dude, that guy, man. It was so full, 153 fish, the net wasn't torn, but yet Peter's dragging that thing to shore. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time, as John records it, that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. There's a very interesting dynamic here in the sequencing of events. But in the entire space where which Jesus provides, he's actually creating a space for restoration. He's holding space, especially for Peter. Especially so Peter can experience restoration. And there's a fundamental reason that was. And it's simply because love restores. Love restores all the time, consistently, love seeks to restore. One of the things I love about the stories of the disciples is I feel like I can relate to them. They're just ordinary dudes called by God to be obedient and faithful. They struggled with their faith and unbelief. They, they struggled in faltering and failing. Yet they, like us, thanks be to God, were not doomed to sit in that space that Jesus actually holds space for us to be restored. We can experience more in him. Love restores. And we know that restoring means renewing. It means reestablishing. In, in many ways, it means returning to, to a condition before impairment, returning to what was, ultimately to what can be. And love seeks to restore. It always seeks to restore. If you just think with me for a moment and just imagine that these stools represent a bit of that two-gap diagram we've looked at. They just say, okay, this is the space of God, this is a space for us, and this is a space for others. And we, no matter who we are, find ourselves sitting in between in this space. We are, we are people created by God and for God. Relationship with him, wholeness, fullness. The problem is there's a gap between us and God. He's holy, we're not. Yet, Jesus is the one who bridges that gap. This is a space of sacrifice and submission. As we submit to Jesus and the authority of God, it is the sacrifice of Jesus that allows us to have a relationship with God. But this relationship will always lead to relationship here. If we love him, we will love this direction. Again, the problem is there's a gap here. This is also a gap of sacrifice and submission. As we continue to submit to Jesus, though, this is the space that we sacrifice. He sacrifices here. We sacrifice here, submitting to him across the board for restoration. See, we're a church that believes that restoration is always possible because love restores. Always possible. Every facility that is within our network, the spaces that we gather, these are all repurposed buildings. The spaces that have been given new life and new purpose, restored. We believe that reflects our, our understanding of the restorative nature of what Jesus can do for us and how we're positioned to restore others. We're called to hold space for restoration. 
out of our restoration, we hold space for others to experience restoration. And Peter needed restoration. Peter is about to be restored by Jesus to be a facilitator of restoration. In many ways, because love restores, we're positioned to restore. So we just step back into the scriptures for just a moment because just as Peter is restored and positioned to restore, so are we. So let's just get back into this. This is verse 15 of John 21. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Now, just in these few sentences are some really deep, significant details. One of which is the name that Jesus is using for Peter. See, Peter's original name was Simon. His birth name was Simon. But back in Matthew 16, because Peter is the first one to say, look, you're, Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. Jesus says, man, because you have said that, that's been revealed to you by the Father, I give you a new name. It's Cephas, which is Peter. It means rock, and you will be the rock on which I build my church. Significant moment for Peter to, to receive his new name. Jesus is using his old name because he's backing up in the relationship and he's starting again. He's restoring. Beyond the name dynamic is is the word of the word, the word love. See, in our world, we, we use love and we have really one word for love, but the Greeks had, had four, three of which, three of which don't speak to the depth of love that we're called to. Storge is one, it speaks to empathy. Eros is romantic love. And then there's filial love, which is brotherly love. Remember that like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. But then there is agape, And agape is unconditional, deep abiding love. And when Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? He's saying, Peter, do you agape, unconditionally love me? But in Peter's response, Peter moves to phileo. And he says, yes, Lord, I brotherly love you. Now, here's the interesting thing for me in this. I don't think Peter's being obstinate. I think he is humbly coming before Jesus in repentance and saying, I haven't loved you as deep as you think I should and know I should. I have failed in that arena. I still love, but I have... I've not been where I should be. And there's a tension in this space that is important for us to embrace, but the question goes on because here's what happens next. Verse 16, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you agape love me, deep abiding love? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo love you, brotherly love. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Again, that tension in there. Verse 17, the third time he said to Simon, son of John, do you, he said, Simon, son of John, do you agape? No, he says, phileo love me. Jesus changes it up. And in that space, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you phileo love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things, you know that I phileo love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. See, Jesus starts with agape, he moves to phileo. Peter uses phileo the whole time. I think it's in repentance. It's not obstinance. In the reality in this paradigm, there's lots of cool nuances in the dynamic between the names that Jesus uses, the name Jesus uses for Peter and the, and the, the verbs. And, and quite honestly, no matter what verb or word for love that Jesus was using, the instructions are the same. Feed my sheep. Take care of my sheep. Start where you are. And even the three questions of do you love me kind of parallel the three denials that Peter had with Jesus. It's really kind of cool. But as you process down through this, there's something that's very intriguing to this whole conversation for me. And it comes out of the very first question that Jesus asked when he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? 
is what did Jesus mean when he said more than these? So I think there's three ways to understand that. So we, read, we read scripture, we can read it and trust it, and it's full of detail, but we don't have tone of voice necessarily in it. We don't even have some of the physical dynamics. Where was Jesus looking? Where was he pointing? But as I consider that, do you love me more than these? I think there's three ways that we could hear that and consider it. First of which is to say, Peter, do you love me more than these guys over there? Your brothers, your comrades, do you love me more than these? And that's very interesting because in Matthew 26, Peter's somebody who steps forward and says, Jesus, I will not fall away. Even if everybody falls away, I will love you more than everybody else. So is Jesus saying, Peter, do you really love me more than these guys? Because you denied me three times. I don't know. Second way to look at this is to say, Peter, do you love me more than you love those guys? Do you love me more than you love your brothers, your companions, more, more than your relationships? Do you love me more than you love them? That's a fair way to look at it. And I think there's a third way to consider Jesus' question. And that is for him to have done this, to say, Peter, do you love me more than you love these things? Then picking up the fishing tackle and pointing to the net. Do you love me more than your job? Do you love me more than your identity? Do you love me more than the things that you possess and the things you can do? Do you love me more than these? Regardless of how Jesus intended it, I think all three are relevant. And I think it, it's valuable for us to consider our answer in each of those three questions. Do we love him? If we love him, Jesus says, then we will feed his sheep. As we walk through the more together journey, I hope that you process your own answer to the question Jesus asked Peter. Even the three different scenarios or different emphasis we can place on it. But regardless of how you answer and respond to that, I hope you understand and see something. That Jesus said, if we love him, we will care for his sheep. If we love, then just like Peter, we will express that in love for others. We will feed, we will care, we will remove the obstacles to people stepping into relationship with God. We will create space for them to know him. Think about it this way. If we just go back and say, look, this is a space for Jesus, this is a space for Peter, and this is a space for everybody else. So you just think about this whole interaction. Jesus, Peter, everybody else. And Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, look at me. Do you love me? Well, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he's like, then feed my sheep. Peter, yes, Lord, do you love me? Well, yeah, I love you. Okay, take care of my lambs. Hey, Peter, yes, Lord, do you love me? Yeah, then take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus is, is positioning Peter to live out of love. I, it's fascinating to me. He didn't say, hey, Peter, come here. Are you, are you sorry for what you did? Do you promise not to do it again? <laughs> he doesn't go there. He goes way deeper. He says, do you love me? If you love me, then you will invest this way. You will demonstrate it in how you relate to other people. You will love as I have loved. You will care as I have cared. You will sacrifice as I have sacrificed. Peter, do you love me? Then invest here. Show me. Demonstrate it. Be the proof of my love to others. See, Jesus didn't come so that we would behave better. Jesus came so we would be better that we would be restored in relationship 
to a loving Heavenly Father. And we would be the catalysts and facilitators of restoration with others. Peter was restored to restore. And so are we. Now, one of the things, if you're someone who's read a lot of scripture and you've studied the things that Jesus has said, you may be thinking of, okay, he said that my sheep know my voice, that my sheep follow my commands, and that he's the shepherd. And you may be thinking, look, is, maybe Jesus is simply saying, we're supposed to be caring for our brothers and sisters in Christ, not those who are far from God, not those who are living in rebellion. And if you're thinking through that, the reality is absolutely our brothers and sisters in Christ are included. In fact, I'll just be honest, there are far too many gaps between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ that shouldn't be there over a lot of dumb stuff. And we should be loving our brothers and sisters. But if you think that's all Jesus was saying, you're missing it. And here's how we know that. It's not just our brothers and sisters. It is, it is everyone, all people, and we know it, even if we just go to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the very ends of the earth. Okay, when Jesus says you'll be my witnesses, I mean, he's talking about being people who point, people who are the proof. We, we can look at it in three ways. We can look at it in a legal sense, historical sense, ethical sense. So we testify, we observe, and we represent. Okay, that's, that's fine and good. To be his witnesses is all of it. So we point, we testify, we live as the proof of his love. But here's the thing. If we go back to Acts chapter 1 verse 8, I used to look at that verse and go, okay, Jesus is describing a geographical ripple that we start where we're at, we reach a little further, and we go all the way as far as we possibly can. Okay, that's not wrong. But I'm not sure the disciples heard it the way I just described it. Because when they heard Jerusalem... Jerusalem was the place of their work. It was the place that they were assigned, home for some. It, Jerusalem was a place for actually, for some of them, was a really difficult place, a hard space. It was a space of sorrow and confusion. For Peter, Jerusalem was a place of regret. It was the last place he wanted to be. It was the place that he had denied Jesus. Yet Jesus says, you will be my witness there, Peter. The place that you have failed, you will be my witness. In that space that I'm calling you to work, you will be my witness. It doesn't have to be our home. It can be, it be the workplace. Jerusalem isn't necessarily about our home. It's about where we are. When we start talking about the reality of Judah or Judea, like, man, Judea looked down on Galilee. There was an arrogance, a bias, a discrimination. Galilee, Galilee was where these dudes were fishing, where some of them were from. And Jesus is saying, look, in a place of bias, in a place of discrimination, you will be my witnesses. Even when we think about Samaria, Samaria was a place of racial and economic strife of the day. The Jews avoided Samaria. And Jesus is saying, you're not going to avoid it. You will be my witnesses there. You will step into the space of economic and racial strife. You will stand in the gap. You will be a facilitator of restoration because I have restored. It is true. There is this geographic ripple to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But there is a whole other layer of the dynamics of people and community and creating space to restore more that I think is very clear in Scripture that Jesus calls us to. It's not a geographic limitation. None of these places are in limitations. They're starting points. For us to step into the places of brokenness, to step into places where people are hurting, to step into places where people are longing for more, and to be the ones who bring restoration because of our restoration who love because we have been loved. 
It's why we do what we do as a church. And I think it's the foundation of our credibility in an an ever increasingly skeptical society. Our willingness to stand in the gaps, to stand in the spaces between and to restore what's been broken and lost in the name and in the love of Jesus. Jesus has allowed us to do this in so many ways. I am grateful. He continues to allow us to draw people to him, allow us to be facilitators of restoration out of the restoration that we have. In fact, I want to give you an opportunity to hear a story from a couple within our church family who has experienced restoration because of what we have done as a church. Uh, Jose Manuel and Priscilla are friends of mine. I just want to invite you to sit back and listen to their journey of intersecting with us as a church and ultimately experience the restoration that Jesus brings. Take a look at this. We were in a point in our lives where we really needed Christ. And my husband and I were having a lot of marriage issues and things were just very broken. And so it wasn't until that moment that I realized I needed help, I needed a savior. I took that step to come to church and recommit my life to Christ and um, really just start praying for my husband because he did not want to come to church. In that time, I was an uh, alcoholic. Uh, I used uh, drugs. I was going to church sometimes, but in my way, I believe in my way. Say, okay, I go to church, you know, but I live in another life outside. Uh, but that day, I've experienced the Holy Spirit in me. It changed everything. Uh, the next day, when I feel that the smoke gone, the drink's gone, and the drug's gone, that day to right now, I'm have five years clean with nothing. It was, it was something that amazing that happened to me in my life. The biggest changes that I've seen in my life, in my husband's life, and in my family's life is that, that unity, um, that love that we can now express to each other uh, and to our family. When we learn to forgive, um, and just surrender it all to the Lord. He uses it in a great way. And I've seen how every day he shows us his grace and his mercy, and it gives us that ability to show grace and mercy to our own family. It's hard, but I know that Jesus Christ brings hope, and that's something there God's calling me to, to go and share, and share that. It's hope in Jesus Christ. No matter what happened, no matter where you are, it's, it's always hope in Jesus Christ. It's amazing how God touched me, my heart. I was not this guy. I was an angry guy. And I know that God have mercy on us. Even no matter what do, He always forgive us and love us. We love being a part of Vida Nueva. It's been a great experience to be able to grow with Vida Nueva since the time we've gotten here, the privilege of meeting new people. I really like the name Vida Nueva. It means new life in English. And so it's really that allowing to see how new people come in and they do experience, they can experience a new life. God put Vida Nueva in the right place for our community. 
I see the wonderfulness of of the other campuses on how they love on us as well and has given us the opportunity to grow. I'm grateful for Heritage and for Vida Nueva to be part of Heritage. And you can see how we all come together. And I think that's the beauty of it. And I, I pray that that can continue to grow and that we can all be, we can all see each other as one. Jose Manuel and Priscilla are living proof of the restorative power of Jesus. Uh, the reality of restoration because of him. That there is freedom, there is healing, there is unity, grace and hope. I love that God allows us to create space for people to connect with him, to be the agents of restoration, to restore more. There's a man by the name of John Orberg who said something I think is really helpful for us. He said, God has entrusted us with his most precious treasure, people. He asks us to shepherd and mold them into strong disciples with brave faith and good character. There is so much true in that statement that applies to you and I and that willingness to risk for more, to, to restore more. I mean, if we have not been willing as a church to risk and sacrifice and invest for more, we haven't been willing to risk into the Kiwani Center or to risk in launching the Bettendorf campus or in launching the Vida Nueva campus, it is highly likely we wouldn't know Jose Manuel or Priscilla. I mean, God may have chosen to, to connect with them and draw him to himself some other way, but he chose to use us. <laughs> and that's part of your legacy. The legacy that they're writing now as leaders within that campus. God has entrusted us with his greatest treasure, people. People. And I think it's fundamentally true to understand that what we do in the lives of others stirs the heart of God. What we do in the lives of others stirs the heart of God. When we invest in the right way, in a healthy way to restore, it stirs his heart in a positive way. When we invest the wrong way, when we're mean, when we're not forgiving, when we're creating brokenness, he responds and stirs still the same because his greatest treasure is people. And that, that investment can be as subtle but as powerful as prayer or can be more overt in some kind of sacrifice or investment in a greater, lay, greater, greater way. When we, when we invest in the lives of others, it stirs the heart of God. It moves the heart of God. And our bold moves of obedience, jumping out of the boat, stepping out of our restoration to restore a part of that process and journey. Our expressions of care and love create space, hold the space for people to be restored. Risking for more creates space for more. And what we do in the lives of others stirs the heart of God. So I wonder, where do you love more than these? Where, where do you love more than these, in relationships, in your job, in your resources, where, where, is the, where is there a space that Jesus is inviting you to choose his kingdom over your comfort, to invest in the lives of others that will inherently lead to stirring of his heart, to love, restore, or even imagine more, to jump from the boat, to reaffirm love for him and our expression of love for others, and ultimately to feed his sheep. Because what we do and investing in other people's lives moves the heart of God. That's really a bit of the heart behind the whole More Together journey and the conversation we've been having as a church. In fact, over the last two weeks, I have asked you to pray and talk to God about how he's calling you to invest alongside in the More Together that he has for us. For two weeks, been having that conversation. 
And as we begin to step in the next part of that conversation, I want to explain a bit more of what that looks like and how we see getting there. Because when we, see, when we start to think about how we're going to love, restore, and imagine more, it comes out of who we are and what can be. We're a church that functions on a, on a yearly basis on a budget of about $4 million. Now, that's our annual budget, and that may seem like a big number to you, maybe not, but we're a big church that serves thousands, and it fits well within industry standards. We function with about $4 million each year. And as we look to step into the more that God has for us, we know that that will take another $5.5 million over the next two years. So that's about $2.75 million each year for the next two years. And as we break that down and how we seek to love and restore and imagine more, we start to see those numbers fall this way. 1.65 in loving, 1.35 in restoring, and 2.5 in imagining. On top of all of that, is our heartbeating commitment to live in greater freedom and to live in greater investment. And so we intend to, to direct $1.5 million towards debt reduction for us. We, we have mortgage. It's not debt related to over expenses or, or a credit line or anything like that. It's, it's around mortgage and acquisition of the facilities that we have. We're seeking to direct $1.5 million towards that debt reduction. We're leaving the rest of the resources to invest in loving, restoring, and imagining. Let me just frame what we mean by loving. We're going to be creating a sacred space at our Bridgepoint facility, a space for sacred moments. We're also looking to establish transitional housing for those we're serving as they come out of incarceration. We're going to be increasing our digital footprint so that we as a church can reach even further with technology. And we're actually investing beyond in greater relationship with Zoe in our Africa investments. When we think about restoring more, we're expanding our Esperanza footprint so there's greater ripple into our communities. We're going to be improving spaces within our campuses, upgrading some of the things within those, those facilities, and actually expanding our community collaboration hub at Bridgepoint. Beyond that, yep, beyond that, we get to imagining the reality is we're going to be launching a worship expression at Bridgepoint. It is an expansion. It is not our intent to reduce anything, but to continue to expand to reach more people. Alongside of that is a university partnership where we're going to be equipping and training up next generation leaders. And God has positioned us to partner internationally in a church partnership in Haiti with one of the fastest growing churches in Haiti that I believe God is positioning to transform that nation through a church planning movement. And he's positioning us to come alongside. And I can only begin to imagine what he wants to do out of that space. Those are some of the primary investments for us as we lean into this journey. And as I have asked you to pray over the previous two weeks, I'm going to ask you to pray over the next two weeks ahead. Because We've leaned in with our staff and with our board. We've engaged our lay leaders. Beth and I have done our due diligence in this process. And next week, I want to tell you specifically how he's asked us as a couple to sacrifice and give into this process. But in two weeks, we're inviting all of us as a church family to declare the more that God has asked us to give. March 7th and 8th. We'll wrap up the More Together journey in our series conversation, but then lean into the rest of the journey as I just described it. I want to invite you to come prepared for that. I've asked you to pray for two weeks, ask you to pray for two more weeks, and in the end, all I'm asking you to do is talk to God and do what he says. Be willing to do whatever he says. And on the 7th and 8th of March is an opportunity to declare that more, the more that he has for us. Our goal is 100% engagement, whatever that quantity is between you and God. But I'm asking you to be engaged, whether for the very first time because you've never really given resources to the work of the church here, or as someone who's given for years to be someone who invests for generations yet to come. Just do what he says. Engage as he asks you to engage. He, he doesn't need your fish. He wants your fish. 
He wants you to give out of the fish he allows you to catch so that the more that he has for us and others can be achieved. In two weeks, I'm going to ask you to step into that journey. On the way in today, you would have had an opportunity to grab a hold of this informational document. We've had it out for a couple weeks. But on the way out, we're going to give you an opportunity to grab a hold of a commitment card. Another prayer reminder for the next two weeks to just, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to engage? On the back of it is a breakdown of how we see we get to the 5.5 million. And as God speaks to you, hopefully you have the clarity of how he wants you to engage in that. Again, I'm just asking you to talk to him and do what he says. That's it so that we can live into the more that he has for us. 100% engagement is our goal. We want to love, imagine, restore even more than he's allowed us to do. And if you have questions about this journey, you want some more details, online at moretogetherqc.com, all kinds of information, the stories we're sharing, some frequently asked questions, lots of ways to dig in and process how God's asking you to lean in. But I'm just asking you to be willing to be the one who jumps out of the boat and moves to him and out of restoration seeks to be part of restoring even more, imagining more and loving more. In fact, as you process that, I really wanna put in your headspace today a question. It's simply, what does God want to restore in you? Or even what does God want to restore through you? It's there. He has that for you. He wants to restore something in you and through you. And we're gonna do something a little bit different as we wrap up our time today. We're going to create a space to process this, to, to interact with him, to, to really seek to restore more. And I'm going to invite leaders across our network to begin to move because we're, going to, we're just going to land a little bit differently than normal and creating an opportunity to lean into restoration more fully. So as those leaders move around our network, I just want to invite you to consider where you stand or sit today in this process. If you do not have a relationship with God, this is the space to experience restoration, to lean towards him, if you have this relationship, then there's an opportunity to be restored, uh, restorative in this direction. Maybe you've gotten off track. Maybe, maybe you need to get right with God and, and that's going to be restored. But then there's a space to f- offer forgiveness, a, a space to bridge a gap in some way between you and somebody else. There is a space now in the next few moments across our network to specifically seek to understand what God wants to restore in you or through you. And I invite you to lean into that. In fact, I invite you to lean in so specifically that you will hear him and you'll be willing to step in bold obedience. In fact, I'm not going to pray out of this space and time. I'm going to invite our leadership at our campuses to lead in these next few moments. And I want to invite you to lean in with them to the invitations that they offer as we create a space, a space to restore even more. So I'm praying for you as we each lean into these next few moments.